All right. Why don't you turn to Matthew 27, please? The title is Passion Week Friday, and this is part five. We're going to be looking at Matthew 27, verse 45 through 54, as we continue our series on Passion Week, as we have taken each event during the last week of the life of Jesus in their order. This is the 15th year, the 15th message. All right, I think we'll finish it next year. But Matthew will continue to be our primary text, supplemented by Mark, Luke, and John when it's appropriate. Um, in the fourth study of the sixth day of Friday of Passion Week, last time we looked at three events at the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, Jesus was crucified with two thieves. We saw Jesus was identified as King of the Jews, and Jesus was mocked by all the people. This is the fifth message of the sixth day of Passion Week, Friday. We'll look at the next three events. Let me read here verse 45 down to 54. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there then when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And so, the next three events of Passion Week here, Friday, are as follows. First, we have the death of Jesus on the cross, verse 45 to 50. Second, we have the veil of the temple was rent due to the cross, verse 51 to 53. And then the confession of the centurion at the cross, verse 54. Let's begin here with the death of Jesus on the cross, verses 45 through 50. Now, the parallel passages, you have Mark 15, 33 to 37, Luke 23, 44 to 46, and John 19, 28 to 30. Notice first, the spiritual nature of the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross was manifested. Listen carefully. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. The specific time is the sixth hour until the ninth. This is confirmed by the two other synoptic gospels, Mark 15.33 and Luke 23.44. John does not mention the darkness. In John, there's no suffering because he presents Jesus as the Son of God. There's no real suffering. Okay? Now, 
This was 12 to 3 p.m. when Jesus uttered the last four sayings from the cross. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus the last three hours. The first three hours were from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. The wrath of man was being hurled at him during those first three hours. Now the darkness, notice from 12 to 3 p.m., was not natural, but supernatural. The darkness was a miracle that can only be explained by the hand of God, not by natural events like an eclipse, due to the fact that the moon is always full at Passover in the middle of the lunar month. Okay? So you cannot say this was something natural. Something supernatural was happening. And all these dots are going to be connected together. This was the result of God the Father in heaven judging his son for the sins of the world. A very dark day in heaven, but a very happy day also. Many of our, our, our riches in Christ come from very sorrowful experiences at times. You learn more from pain and sadness than you do from joy. Difficult times teach you. Good times just entertain you. Nothing wrong with them, but they don't teach you much. The darkness was over all the land. Underline that. It has to mean the whole world. This is supernatural. If the sun is blotted out, that means it affects half of the world, right? When it's light over there, it's dark over here, right? You can't say it's just the land, just where the cross is. No. Mark and Luke confirmed this fact. John omits it completely. Mark 15, 33, Luke 23, 44. Look at verse 46. The sacrifice for the sins of the world was at a great price. The Son of God was separated from the Father for the very first time. Listen to the words. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark and Luke both give the same time, the ninth hour, Mark fifteen thirty-four and Luke twenty-three forty-four. Mark records the same thing as Matthew. He doesn't add anything. Mark fifteen thirty-four, the whole verse. Notice the agony of Jesus was uttered here. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli. Lama sabachthani. The word cry means aloud. At the hour of prayer, by the way, Acts 3.1 gives you the ninth hour, one of the hours of prayer in the temple. No coincidence. The cry was one of spiritual agony, not physical, as Jesus had become the sin offering to atone for the sins of the world. Often people try to move people emotionally by the physical suffering Christ went through. There have been people, human beings, who have gone through worse agony than Jesus at the cross. Tortured at war, in prison camps, Auschwitz, 
stuff like that. And not to minimize it. But the worst agony is spiritual. Okay? Physical doesn't save anything. What's going on here is a spiritual transaction, okay? Let's keep it clear. Now, notice Matthew here has the Hebrew. Eli, Eli, Laba Sabachthani. Mark has the Aramaic. Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. In, or Eloi, Eloi, I'm sorry. And that's Mark 15, 34. So Matthew has the Hebrew because he's writing to who? He's writing to the Jews. Mark, as the servant is writing to the Romans. Those cultures went both ways. But you have Hebrew and you have the Aramaic. Now, notice the translation is provided by both Mark and Luke. So we're not left to our own interpretation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Both here and in Mark. Jesus is quoting the psalm, Psalm 22.1. This is prophecy being fulfilled. The answer to why the Father forsook Jesus is found in the third verse of Psalm 22. Listen to it. But you are holy, the Son says about the Father. The Father is absolutely holy. The Son had become sin for the world. There's your reason. God cannot condone sin. He has to judge sin. All right? Very clear. Jesus was forsaken by the Father. Notice he did not say, Father, why have you forsaken me? But my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For he took on himself all the sins of the world and was being judged. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. As a sheep to the slaughter. We didn't esteem him. Stricken of God. For us. Vicariously. Jesus was separated from the Father. Breaking fellowship in a way that we will never understand. In this side of heaven. As the wrath of God was poured out on him. We can understand to a certain point what's going on because God reveals and has directed it prophetically. But the actual event between the Father and the Son, we can only imagine. But we all know that holiness and sin can't be one, so there was a separation. This is the agony. This is the greater suffering. I don't know if you're a parent and Maybe you've had your one-year-old or two-year-old walking around in the store and you, you let go of their hand and reach down to grab some money and you turn around and they're gone. You die. Because you think of your child, how they must feel that they don't see you around. Just a little illustration of what probably took place between the father and the son. Very first time separated from all eternity. Wow. This was prophecy fulfilled, as I said. 
The Father had sent Jesus to be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist said that as they pointed to him in John 1.29, speaking to his disciples. The Father was judging all the sins of the world on Jesus as he was the propitiation for our sins, not ours alone, but the whole world. 1 John 2.2. Propitiation has the idea of the Hebrew sacrifice, that which satisfied, appeased, if you will, the demands of God. There was a payment being made here. A spiritual transaction being made. The payment was made to the Father, not to Satan like many teachers teach today. It's blasphemous. As they teach that Jesus went down to Hades and made the payment to Satan. Blasphemous. Sin in the garden was not against Satan, it was against God. And yet hundreds and thousands of Christians, so-called, sit there and applaud these false teachers. Wow. The Father made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Galatians 3.13. Wow. Again, cognitively we can understand that. And because of God's spirit, we can understand spiritually the love of God for us, and we respond because he first loved us. Wow. Jesus cried out to the Father as the God-man, the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy of the virgin birth of the Messiah, the Redeemer to come. Emmanuel, God with us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, as Gabriel speaks to Mary, the Savior of the world, as Jesus told the woman of Samaria in John 4.42, the last Adam, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15.45. Wow. Notice the mixed reaction towards Jesus as he was making the way of salvation for man in verse 47 through 50. Some misunderstood Jesus. In 47, some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Elijah represented the prophets, as you know. Elijah was prophesied to come. But at the second coming, John the Baptist came in the power and the spirit of Elijah, short-term, but long-term-wise, Elijah will come. He'll be one of the two witnesses during the Great Tribulation. Notice others attempted to relieve his thirst. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. Matthew is the only one that gives us the detail that the sponge was put on a reed, which is a stick about 18 inches long. He's up on the cross. Very good, interesting detail. He's the only one that tells us that. Mark focused on one individual. Listen to him, Mark 15, 36. Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. This is right out mockery. This is provocation. This is insult. Luke omits it altogether. This fact, this verse. John includes others. Listen. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. John nineteen twenty nine. The fulfillment of prophecy. 
Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Psalm 69, 21. All prophetic. As he's on the cross, prophecy after prophecy is being fulfilled. The Jews mocked Jesus. Look at 49. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. They took Jesus for a deceiver. They took Jesus as a false prophet. They took Jesus as a blasphemer. Making himself out to be God being a man. That's why over his head was Jesus, king of the Jews. And the Jews were mad. They told Pilate, don't put, he's king of the Jews. Say, he said, he's king of the Jews. Say, what I've written, I've written. That's it. In your face. He got back to him. Because <laughs> they set him up. Look at verse 50. Jesus dismissed his own spirit for death. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. At the ninth hour, he cried out. Once again, the hour of prayer. Acts 3.1. Mark says, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Mark 15.37. Luke puts it this way. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Notice how important it is to put all the three synoptic, even the fourth one, when possible together. Because here, Luke says, Father. The others don't say that. All of a sudden, before he gives up his spirit, fellowship is reunited again. The payment has been made. Not God, but Father. You ever catch that? Wow. John says, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. What's finished? The work of atonement. The plan of salvation, the provision. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. John 19.30. You remember Jesus speaking to the Jews in John 10.18. He said, no one takes... My, takes it from me, meaning his life. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. Wow. The death of a person for another is heroic. Allowing that person to continue living. But they will die again. Sooner or later. But the death of Jesus allows a person to live forever with him. If you believe that it was for you. The sin of Adam introduced death to the human race, as you know. That is temporal. Death is temporal. Every person born will die physically one day. Every baby born begins to die as they take their first breath after coming out of their mother's womb. Yet we celebrate their birthday. <laughs> the statistics on death are unmistakable. One for one. 
Every person that is born will die. Paul puts it this way, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned in Adam. Romans 5.12. Memorize that verse. It is a key verse. You're a sinner because you are a descendant of Adam. Your children are going to be sinners because they're your descendants and you're a sinner. You pass down your sinfulness. No sinner has ever had a saint. Never. Just another rotten little sinner. Cute one, but a sinner. The sin of Adam at the same time introduced spiritual death to the human race. That is eternal. The instant Adam ate, he became spiritually dead and out of fellowship with God. The nature of Adam was now bent towards self, sin, and self-deception. Jeremiah 13.23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? It's a rhetorical question. Only one correct answer. No. Then may you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. There's a better chance that an Ethiopian could change his skin from black to white and a leopard, the spots to stripes, than for you to not be a sinner. We're busted. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And he, and you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, listen, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. Wow. That's not a very, picture, a very good picture of us. It's a true picture, though. How often have you taken a picture and they show you a picture? Oh, that's not me. No, that's you. That's you. If I took a picture tonight and, you know, I say, you want to, before you leave here tonight, you can look at your pictures on the way out. And you'd go up there and you look at, oh, that's you. Because we think we look better than the picture takes. Well, I, 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 that was the bad side, which is your good side. <laughs> Amazing. The problem of sin and eternal death was resolved right here on the cross. Jesus came as the last Adam, just like the first Adam, a quickening spirit. 1 Corinthians 15.45 Adam brought death, Christ brought life. Jesus takes the dead <clears throat> for every human being. Hebrews 2.9 Vicariously. Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death, the devil. Hebrews 2.14 In fact, the Apostle Paul tells the Romans, And the gift is not... Like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation or judgment. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. 
He did for you what you could never do for yourself. He paid the price for your sin so that you could be redeemed by the grace of God, as well as I. For as in Adam all died, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. The death of Jesus on the cross was the payment for sin. Notice secondly, comes verse 51 to 53. The veil of the temple was rent through the cross. The cross reference or parallel is Mark 15, 38 and Luke 23, 45. Notice here in verse 51, the acceptance of Jesus as a sin offering and high priest was confirmed. The chronological connection is stated. One word. It begins verse 51. Then, then. The word then has a cumulative force in view that Jesus just dismissed his spirit. At that time, right after Jesus dismissed his spirit, then the command to observe is given. Then, behold, means to pay attention, to observe. What has taken place. The middle voice indicates the command must be carried out by each individual. God saves individuals, not families. No groups. There may be entire families in heaven, but they're saved individually. Notice the confirmed way to God had been changed. I'm sorry, the confined way to God was changed. The veil of the temple was torn in two, from the top to the bottom. That veil brought a certain confinement. Who could go in there? The veil of the temple separated the holy place from the most holy, as you know. The high priest alone was able to enter the, behind the veil into the holy of holies in the tabernacle or the temple, um, which is, was the pattern of the throne in heaven. He was of the family of Aaron. Nobody else could go in. And he went in once a year after many washings and many sacrifices. He would atone for the sins of the nation, offering a scapegoat. All of this is given in the book of Leviticus. And this would take place on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the 10th of October. Now that day changes because the Jews have a lunar month and they have a civil calendar. Uh, a civil calendar and a religious calendar. So there's two different ways. Now, notice the veil had been torn by God. You get this because it's torn from the top to the bottom. Notice the specific direction of the tearing. I'm so glad it says top to bottom. The veil is believed to be 60 feet at that time long, 30 feet wide, and a hand's breadth from little fat finger to little, little finger. That's the breadth, about six to seven inches. There are other dimensions that are given, but the most repeated dimensions of this size is this one right here, pretty large. Josephus says, and I'm quoting, it was a Babylonian curtain, 
embroidered with blue and fine linen, scarlet, purple, and of contexture that was truly wonderful. About, I think, 30 to 40 priests had to hold it up so they can get it up. I mean, it was just heavy. Mark confirms this without the command to behold the earthquake and the rock split is also not there. Mark fifteen thirty eight. So it's important to put the, the one side by side so you can see who's adding something, who's eliminating. But as you put it all together, you get a full picture of what it is. By the way, to tear that hand breath, men couldn't do it. It's too thick. The number of threads that were used within that, that, that curtain, it's impossible. And when it ripped, you would hear a huge sound. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, by recording the renting of the veil, emphasize the change of priesthood from Aaron's Levitical order to the priesthood of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. The book of Hebrews is full of it. I'll give you some of those verses. 5, 6, 10, 6, 20, 7, 11, 15, 17, and 21. And there are others. But all those say after the order of Melchizedek. Ah, according to the order of Melchizedek. He's in Genesis with Abraham. Then you find him a thousand years later with David. And then you hear nothing else and you find him as the fulfillment in Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews. Only three places. Notice the veil untorn would indicate the way to God was still limited to Aaron's priesthood and only to the Jew. Unless you proselyte it in. What's going on here is, to quote the last administration, historic. <laughs> But it's in heaven. This is a great day in heaven. And it's such great news. That's why the gospel is called the good news. The new high priest Jesus would enter the holy of holies in heaven and intercede for Jew and Gentile now. Hebrews 9.8 says, The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, listen, that is, his flesh. Hebrews 10.20 So it, the connection is the flesh of Jesus being offered up as the perfect God-man. And he, by his flesh, tearing that veil, making the connection. Hebrews seven twenty five says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, 12. What a great day this is that we're reading about. Wow. 
Look at the evidence of the heavenly transfer was indicated by divine evidence here. Verse 52 and 53. The supernatural affirmation was described here. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Earthquakes are natural events. They happen all the time. This particular earthquake is associated with the heavenly transaction of the new and eternal high priest in heaven. As he made the payment for the sins of the world. The earthquake and the rocks split. Mark and Luke and John make no mention of the earthquake or rock splitting. Only Matthew. The supernatural rising of the dead here was declared. Look at verse 52. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. The graves were open of those that had died and been buried. The evidence that Jesus had conquered death. He spoke about it. If you believe in me, you'll never die. We're just told their graves were open. Allowing them to come out. The particulars of these individuals is important. Don't miss them. They were many, Matthew says, a large or great number of bodies. We're not told the number, but it was big. Okay? They were believers indicated by the word saint, hagios. It's the root word for holy, sanctification, and saint. Same root word. They literally, having fallen asleep, a masculine participle, perfect middle voice, meaning an accomplished fact for each individual, an expression of a person who has believed and lived for God and died physically and continues to live on with Jesus Christ. Having fallen asleep is never used of a non-believer, only of a Christian. Paul says, and many of them, and, and some have slept in Christ. In First Thessalonians 4, 18, down to, uh, 13 to 18, where he speaks about the, the rapture, they'll be caught up with us. That's where you get sort of this death sleep from cemeteries, which comes to sleep, okay? It's a pagan practice, it's not ours. Okay, you live on, you're not asleep. The angels won't come and wake you. <laughs> they usher you before God. Okay? The phrase, we're raised, is indicative errors passive, a confirmed fact in the past. Now, notice in verse 53, the supernatural raising of dead people was witnessed. And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That must have shocked some people. And Egna, what are you doing? The specific time is stated. 
and coming out forth after his resurrection. They didn't rise right there when the veil's being torn. When Jesus rose from the dead. Read it well. Okay? Literally, having gone forth. The tense is a plural masculine eras active. The people raised out of their graves and entered the holy city. The holy city refers to Jerusalem. They appeared. It means manifested or exhibited themselves to be viewed. The viewers were many. Same word, polos, as before. A large and great number of people saw the great number of people that were raised. (laughs) Now, what kind of body did they have? I don't know. We don't get our glorified bodies till the rapture. But yet, the minute you die as a Christian, you're instantly present, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. What are you in? I don't know. But you're never found naked. Am I in my glorified body? No, you're not. I don't know. We'll ask him when we get there. Doesn't make any difference. You're going to be with Jesus, so it doesn't matter, right? People ask that these people go on and die again and live their life normal. Well, it doesn't tell us that. So we cannot teach from the absence of Scripture, right? This was the evidence. That Jesus had conquered death. He was the first fruit. 1 Corinthians 15 says. And then those in their own order after him. Jesus first. Then these guys. And then those that are going to be with him. All in their own order. Okay. God is not like man who favors people or does a few benevolent things for man. But um, he invites all to repent and be his bride based on his grace, unmerited favor. He offers salvation to all, excluding none. If God had not given Adam and Eve the promise of redemption through his son, they would have been hopeless. If he wouldn't have given them Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, they'd have been hopeless. Adam and Eve would have lived their lives without God. On their mere human abilities and their fallen nature. Adam and Eve would have been cut off from God's direction, provisions, and protection. Because God couldn't have fellowship with them if there hadn't been a promise. If God had not given to Adam and Eve the provisions for forgiveness, they would have lived with guilt, shame, and regret of their past. But yet, Genesis 3.21, God killed a little animal, covered their sin as they repented, and clothed them. It says, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Adam and Eve repented of their sins through the blood of that animal, which was a token, a IOU of the true payment to come. 
it was prophetically pointing in faith to the ultimate payment, Jesus Christ, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.19. Adam and Eve were reconciled in fellowship with God at that point. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve were different now from before their sin. They were fallen with sin nature. Though in fellowship, though reconciled, they're different. They're not as before the fall. If God had not protected the tree of life in the garden, Adam would have entered in again, eaten of the tree of life, and therefore would have lived eternally in a fallen nature, and redemption would have been unable to be performed. So God in his love kicked Adam and Eve out and put a cherub there in the garden, the cherubim to guard it with a flame revolving sword. See, the love of God is often misunderstood as no love at all. I think our society today is a perfect example of that because if you're a father and you're a mother and you really love your children and they get in their years of teenage or young adults and they get wayward and you cut them off from fellowship because of their lifestyle or because you ask them to leave the home because they become so wayward, people who are in the world who aren't Christians, they think you're the worst parent. You're judgmental. You have no compassion. You have no love for them. No, you do have love. Love disciplines. Love points out the wrong and pleads for the right. Please for repentance. If you don't love your children, you let them live the way they want. If you love your children, you point out what's wrong. And so God did. The terms of God often are seen as restrictive, but they're for our protection. Many of us, when we were growing up, we thought that about our parents. Now your parents. Now your children think that of you, but you're a little smarter. You've been around the block a couple of times, sometimes on your face, sometimes on your back. So you understand now. The ways of God are based on holy righteousness. To truly forgive and save a person through Jesus who died on the tree, the cross. Listen to uh, Genesis 3, 22 through, uh, 20, 22 through 24. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, a man has become like one of us to know good and evil. There's the Trinity, us. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove him, drove out the man, and he placed cherubim in the east of the garden of Eden and flaming swords which turned every which way to guard the way of the tree of life. Where's the tree of life? The cross of Jesus Christ. Everybody can partake of the tree of life now. 
Listen to Peter, 1 Peter 2.24. Who himself bore our sins, meaning Jesus, in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. Peter picks up, by his stripes we were healed, quoting uh, Isaiah 53, for our spiritual redemption. Matthew quotes it for our physical healing. Both. Same verse. Fulfill prophecy. The veil of the temple was rent through the cross for all to depend on Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Notice thirdly, the confession of the centurion at the cross. One verse. Verse 54. The parallel is Mark 15, 39 and Luke 23, 47. Now we're going to take each gospel individually and notice the specific focus. The record of Matthew focuses on what the men perceived as supernatural events in nature. The individuals were Roman soldiers. It says, so when the centurion and those with him, the centurion, as you know, was an officer of Rome. Uh, he commanded a hundred men under him. Every time a centurion is mentioned in the gospel, he's always declared and, 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 and revealed in a good light. Those with the centurions were without doubt some of the soldiers under him. Those Roman soldiers were um, accustomed to the brutality of Rome. They were the defenders of Rome. They were incredible soldiers. Notice the responsibility of these men was to guard him who were guarding Jesus. These soldiers were rugged men. You didn't mess with Roman soldiers. These soldiers guarded many men who had been crucified by Rome. Uh, the roads of Rome were lined up with crosses at times as you approached the city. So as you came into a city, you realized, don't mess with Rome. Enjoy yourself, but behave yourself. The purpose of guarding was that no one would interfere with the execution as well as to attempt to take the person down until the soldiers took him down after death. Notice these individuals were able to make the connection between what was taking place at the crucifixion of Jesus as they saw the earthquake and the rocks splitting. These men were present and they heard the railing and blasphemy of the people against Jesus, the Jews. These men heard the railing of the two thieves against Jesus. These men heard the one thief rebuke the other thief and then turn to Jesus. These soldiers responded in the proper manner. Listen, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of Man, or the Son of God, I'm sorry. These soldiers were gripped with great fear. We get the word phobia from it, phobos. They were seasoned warriors, but they feared God, not man. 
At this point, God is dealing with their hearts. These men had witnessed the sudden darkness at 12 noon till 3. The earthquake, the splitting of the rocks, all of this was too much for coincidence. This was miraculous. These men heard all the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, by the way. These soldiers were gripped with the reality of who Jesus was all of a sudden, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. These men had heard all the words of Jesus again from the cross, one by one. What, 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 they, they've seen many people crucified. They've never heard this stuff. They, they've never witnessed a man say this stuff. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. These men heard one of the thieves repent and asked Jesus to remember him when he entered his father's kingdom or his own kingdom. These men heard the thieves say to Jesus, Lord, when he said, Lord, he was saying, I believe in you. Luke 23, 42. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. These men had heard the words of Jesus to the thief. Surely I say to you, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. <laughs> wow. That's Matthew. The record of Mark focuses only on the centurion as he witnessed Jesus dying. Mark 15, 39. Mark only mentions the centurion. So when the centurion, that's it. He was a participant to the brutal torment and treatment of Jesus, as well as the horrific ordeal of crucifixion. A participant to ensure Jesus remained on the cross. Mark tells us the reference point of the centurion to Jesus on the cross, who stood Opposite him, he was directly in front of Jesus. He was looking at an angle up by the reed, about 18 inches, so he's probably up maybe about 10 feet, nine feet or so. Mark gives us his witness listen, of sight, not ear, saw that he cried out like this and breathe his last he witnessed the ending agony on the face of Jesus as he cried out nothing's recorded of hearing seen he witnessed Jesus breathe his last now the centurion has seen many men die on the cross but Jesus was different John says, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The centurion had never heard this from anybody. He dismissed his spirit. He said the transaction is done. Wow. Mark records the very words of the centurion. Listen, 
He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Truly means most certainly. This was illumination in the heart of the centurion. He's agreeing with God, what God is revealing to him. The light went on. The centurion confessed this man was the son of God. Everything that had transpired, he saw and heard with the open heart, resulting in conviction, acknowledging Jesus was exactly who he said he was, the God-man. Can you imagine if this was the only time this centurion ever came in contact with Jesus right at the end? (laughs) His beliefs stood in opposition to the accusations and mockeries of the Jews. Greater condemnation and judgment for the Jews. Then we have Luke. The record of Luke focuses on the innocence of Jesus. Luke 23, 47. John records as Jesus refuses the sour wine to relieve him. So when the centurion saw what had happened, I'm sorry, Luke. Um, Yeah, Luke. Those that have eyes to see, Jesus often said, let them see. Those that have ears to hear, let them hear. Those who have an open heart. To receive, they'll receive. These principles applied here at the cross. Same way. In fact, John witnessed the centurion give honor to God. Because John says, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Glorious. Glorified means Praise, exalted, or magnified God. This is grace and the Spirit at work. To those who have ears to hear and hearts to be open to God. To receive the good news. The forgiveness of their sins. The certainty meant the reality and point in fact. Jesus was a righteous man. The word righteous simply means upright, innocent, faultless, and guiltless. He was the substitute for the sins of the world. The most unjust thing happened at this point. Jesus was crucified, a man without sin, because he became sin. Wow. You remember the Philippian jailer? He brought Paul and Silas out and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved in your household. Acts 16, 30, 31. That's how it is. Everybody deserves hell, yet everyone go to heaven if they repent. Before they die. Each person has to come to believe God that they are sinners in need of a Savior. Listen to Romans 10, 17 through 18. So then faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Everybody without excuse. From creation, conscience, and history. And the gospel, special revelation. Each person has to believe that Jesus actually died in their place vicariously for their personal sins. Listen to 
Um, John 3.16 down through 17 said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3, 16 through 18. Very clear. Each person, as they repent, will come to believe and understand the crucifixion of Jesus. It was the most unjust thing that has ever taken place. Judah said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to yourselves. Matthew twenty-seven fourteen. Pilate saw that the, he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising. He took water, washed his hands before the mother, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it, Matthew twenty-seven twenty-four. Absolutely innocent. Yet he died for our sins. Wow. The confession of the centurion at the cross was an admission of his sin and repentance also. Wow. This is the fifth message of the sixth day of Passion Week Friday. Through these three events, the death of Jesus on the cross was the payment for sin. The veil of the temple was rent through the cross for all to depend on Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And the confession of the centurion of the cross was an admission of repentance from his sins. Maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you're out there listening somewhere in the world. And you don't know Jesus Christ. You need to know that Jesus died for you because he loves you. And if you believe that he died for you, you also have to believe that he rose from the dead. Even as he raised those from the dead. They rose after he rose. And he can forgive you of your sin. A simple prayer is what God requires all the time. If this is your desire, this is your prayer. You can ask him right now where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you. As my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.